put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. On this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. But it was always worth it because people noticed me. And now I was being noticed and I wasn't in trouble. And it felt kind of good. So that's the night I decided in the car on the way home, this is what I'm going to do. You know, if I ask you, James, who's the best trumpet player? Rafael Mendez? Doc Severinsen? Harry James? Or Louis Armstrong? You're going to have a tough choice because they're all so great in their own way. They're all highly influential. We realize just how many thousands of hours he had to have practiced the trumpet to be a perfectionist like that, to do things that were seemingly impossible and do it with ease, night after night. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. That is a catchy tagline, and I'm, I, I like it, and I hope you like it too. But we are talking with a gentleman who can literally tell the story of the trumpet. David Hickman is someone that I've uh, known about, uh, have just met just for the first time just a few seconds ago, and uh, we're going to get to know him a little bit. But uh, you talk about someone who knows the trumpet inside and out, the history, pedagogy, technique. He's just one of those people that is the person that you go to for all things trumpet. It's a real honor to bring you onto the show, David Hickman. I'm glad to be able to do this. Well, every guest that I have on the show, I ask the same question, and it always leads into different rabbit trails that we can pursue, but I always like to ask, how did you get started on the trumpet? I started when I was in sixth grade. I grew up in a little little farm town in Nebraska, and it's way, way as far west as you can go in the state. It's almost in Wyoming. It's called Kimball, Nebraska. Back then, the town was about 3,000 people, and there was one elementary school, one junior high, one high school, and so they had one band man named Harry McNeese. McNeese taught band for all three schools. I really didn't have any interest in music, but my best friend wanted to join the band, and so I thought, well, okay, you know, if you're going to join, I should join, because we did everything together, and I said, what are you going to, what instrument are you going to play? He said, well, I have an old cornet that my grandfather owned and handed down, and I thought, well, I don't even know what a cornet is, but I guess I'll play cornet. Told my folks that's what I wanted to play. So we thought we could sit next to each other and goof off, but I sat last chair, because I never practiced, and he sat first chair. So we, we didn't get to interact very much. But one day after one of the band practices, the band director, I found out later, he went to every kid in the band and asked them if they wanted to take private lessons because he, he could teach all the instruments. And he asked me if I wanted to take lessons. And I didn't know what private lessons were. So my first reaction, I said to him, uh, am I that bad? He said, no. He said, uh, you know, I'm trying to get every everybody in the band to take lessons. You'll improve a lot faster. And You'll enjoy it more. And I got to say that when I was a, a little kid, I was a real troublemaker. And I think I was just looking for some kind of outlet to be noticed because I wasn't particularly great at sports. I wasn't good at academic student. I was just kind of unnoticed Mr. Average, you know. So this was actually the first teacher who was nice to me, had a pleasant conversation with because usually when teachers talk to me, it's because I was in trouble. Because I was always trying to get attention and goofing off. I wasn't a bad kid. You know, I wasn't mean-spirited. I just wanted attention. Goofing off and being sent to the principal's office, I guess that's how I got attention. But anyways, I told my parents, I said, you know, the band director asked me if I want to take lessons. I think I'd like to do that. He's a really nice guy, and 
well, they, they were glad to see me being positive about anything. <laughs> right. They said, well, what does it cost? And I said, well, he charges 50 cents for a 30-minute lesson, which I thought was really cheap even back then. Wow. Said, you know, we're talking early 60s. Well, they were happy to pay it. And so I ended up taking lessons with him. And I'm glad because cornet was his number one instrument. Okay. It was his main instrument. So he was really good at teaching that. And, and all the cornet players in the school were really good. And so I always had a lot of competition. So growing up in this little town, believe it or not, I struggled to finally make first chair in a high school band because for year after year after year, the, the top chairs in the all-state band were always from Kimball. Really? When I was a freshman, I sat fifth chair in the band. The first four chairs ahead of me were the first four chairs in the all-state band. Wow. You had to be a junior or senior to audition for all-state. And then the sixth chair was the fifth chair in the all-state band. So you could argue that the top six in my little high school band were the top six in the state. So I always had a lot of competition, and I was always wanting to play solos, and we played a lot of trumpet trios and all that kind of stuff. And it was a friendly rivalry, but pushed me hard, and I enjoyed the competitiveness of it. I enjoyed having fun doing it. And so I think when I... By the time I finished sixth grade, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a trumpet player. So this is Kimble, Nebraska? Yeah, a little little tiny farm town. Is it K-I-M-B-L-E? K-I-M-B-A-L-L. Oh, okay, Kimball. Okay. And then what was your that director's name? Harry McNeese. That's M-C, capital N-E-E-S. Okay. It's a great story, but he just had, it sounds like he just had a, a teacher's heart. You have to have, to have a certain mindset or a certain mentality to be effective as a teacher. And he definitely sounds like he really had that. My whole life, I thought he was the perfect music educator. I wish that every music education student could have seen him, met him, maybe been a student teacher under him. You know, he really uh, not only taught music well, but he was really there for the kids. He, he took a real interest in every kid in that band. There was a, a boy in the band who was very shy and sat, you know, like last chair cornet. This kid was so shy. One day he went, Harry went to him and said, what I want you to do when you go down the hallway, I want you to say hello to every person you see. As they go by, you say hello. Whether they respond or not, doesn't matter. Just, I want you to be outgoing and say that. So for several days he had him doing that. And he kept working with this guy. This later became mayor of Kimball. And gave good speeches and was, and then, you know, there were just a lot of people that were like that that he took a hold of. And in my case, I think kept me out of reform school because I was headed that direction. I was in trouble a lot. And by the time I started playing cornet, I was starting to get into a little bit more serious trouble. I like to throw rocks. I throw rocks at cars going by, throw rocks through windows, people's houses, just for no reason, just to be ornery, just to get attention. And so finally, you know, the police were getting involved and there was, I remember there was talk about reform school and I didn't know what that was. Now I know. And (laughs) Harry saved me from a life in the penitentiary probably. So reform school is basically like a, like a prison for children? For kids. Yeah. And the one in Nebraska called Boystown was particularly bad. Usually the kids that went there were treated so badly from what I heard, by the time they got out, they were hardened criminals. So it, it made him worse. Harry McNeese had a, a little uh, sign that he framed and put on the wall of his office. 
And it said, teach a kid to blow a horn and he'll never blow a safe. Teach a kid to blow a horn and he'll never blow a safe. Yeah, and I think maybe that was good in my case. So by taking an interest, it sounds to me like maybe he put his priority on the well-being of his students. And by doing that, it brought out the best in all of you musically. Yeah, I think, you know, he was there mainly for the kids. He really helped every kid mature and become productive citizens through music. When we did marching band or anything like that, it was always this, you know, team spirit. And and I know a lot of schools, you know, have that going for them, but that was really what he was all about. It's really, I think, uh, what why we should have music education in the schools, why it's important. Because it's not just music, it's you're developing your character. You know, you learn to be a team player, you, you have your own individual discipline to show up on time, practice your part, don't mess up the music. And yeah, he really took a personal interest in every kid. When he retired, uh, they dedicated the high school auditorium in his name. And that auditorium would seat about 700 people. In fact, there were only about 300 students in the high school. That auditorium was absolutely, completely packed. And I was there for that. I gave a little talk about Harry, and I played a couple solos that he happened to like. He was there for that. And uh, it's just amazing how many people showed up for that dedication. People that had played in his band 30 years before that. Wow. So that's why teaching has always been important to me, because I always wanted to be like him, although I, I never really had an interest in doing the public school teaching. I knew I, I wanted to teach trumpet, but I wanted to teach my whole life. That's why I, I spent almost 50 years teaching at the university level. When you're teaching at the university level, do you find yourself mirror, mirror, mirroring Harry McNeese at all? I don't think I could ever be the, as good of a human being and an educator that he was but I try to, you know, take an interest in the students, not only to make them better trumpet players and better musicians, but to sometimes my most enjoyable students were the ones that maybe the youngest and the, the least musical. Sometimes I take more interest in them because what was holding them back, it was like, like me, you know, what was holding them back was some personal things. So you try to become a, a mentor, not just a music teacher. I hope I've helped some of them in that way, but I don't think I came close to doing what he could do for all the kids. It's interesting how, um, I mean, you're speaking so glowingly of Harry McNeese, and, and there he is in this tiny town on the edge of Nebraska. There he is in that small, just really isolated from, it, it seems to be isolated from, from yeah. our perspective maybe. But look at the impact he made in just that little town. doesn't matter where, where you are. You could right. be in the city in the world or the smallest you're still working, you know, with right. other student musicians. And so I think whether you're an athletic coach or a math teacher or any kind of teacher, when you interact with the kids, particularly in elementary, junior high, and high school ages, you, you really need to be more than just someone who teaches your subject. And I had so many teachers through college and, and of course, in public school that you know, they were very good at teaching their particular subject, science or physics or math or, you know, whatever it was, but really had no interest in any of the kids. You could be in their class an entire year and they still wouldn't know your name. They still had to have the little seating chart with names on it. That's how little they cared about who they were. Some of these people, you know, you just, you forget about them. Yeah, it's the teachers that take an interest in you personally that you remember. What, whatever they taught, you forgot it 
probably when you walked out of the class, but it's yeah. that personal personal connection that, that really sticks with you. I, I'd like to know, when did trumpet become more than just something you did in school? You obviously did it fairly well. Eventually make the first chair in a, in a band of that stature. It's one thing to do that, but it's another thing to make it your career. So when did you realize that this is what I want to do as a player and as a teacher? When I played my first solo, which was in, in sixth grade. Really? Yeah, we all were to play. You know, he asked all the best players in the band. I, I eventually moved up first chair in my little sixth grade band, you know. I was the only one in the cornet section taking lessons at, at that time. He asked all the first chair players if they wanted to play a solo for the district solo contest. And I didn't know what that was about. He said, well, you know, he memorized a little solo and he play it and they give you a, a grade, you know. If you're the best of all the cornet players, you'll get a medal. So I said, well, sure. So I played a little Vandercook solo and I still have it memorized. I remember I remember practicing it so much from then. So I, I learned this little solo and then on our spring band concert, he had all the students that were going to play solos at contests. There were four of us, I think had us each play our solos with piano. So I played my little solo, and I'm looking out at this audience of a couple hundred people, and they're all parents, you know. Well, I finished my solo, and it was nice. I, I thought it went well, and got some applause. But after the concert, backstage, all these parents were coming back to pick up their kids, and they'd come up to me and shake my hand and say, that was a really nice performance there. And, uh, and I would shake their hands, and I, I would look at them, I remembered them because I was over at, at my friend's house, you know, I was I was over at their house playing with their child and I did something to get in trouble. And I got in trouble with them. So I remember their face. I remember them being mad at me, basically kicking me out of their house. Now they're coming up and shaking my hand and saying, nice job there, little feller. It was a whole nother feeling for me in the car on the way back home after the concert. And it was quiet. And I, I said probably the most prophetic thing I'd said at that point. I said, wow, all that attention, I didn't even get in trouble. That's when it really dawned on me right then. That's why I'm always in trouble. I'm trying mm. to find some outlet to be noticed. Everyone needs to be noticed. Everyone needs to have some identity. And it really does not matter if it's a good identity or bad. The main thing is that you have People notice you and that you have an identity. And I remember when I got in trouble, yeah, I didn't like being in trouble, but it was always worth it because people noticed me. And now I was being noticed and I wasn't in trouble and it felt kind of good. So that's the night I decided in the car on the way home, this is what I'm going to do. My grandfather was an amateur musician and for my 12th birthday, he gave me my first trumpet recording and it was a recording of Rafael Mendez. I listen to that thing all the time, and I remember just thinking, I want to play solos like that. That's what I want to do. I think it was maybe a couple years later I saw Mendez play in concert live with the high school in Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is only an hour hour drive from Kimball. Boy, that really sealed it. Of course, I never came close to being a player like him, but that's what made me decide. That's what I want to do, and uh, I never, ever thought about doing anything else. Of course, when I went to college, I wanted to be a performance major. You know, I went to college in the late 60s, and back then, very few schools had performance degrees for undergraduates. You could get it to master's and doctoral level, but not, well, except for the big conservatories, you know, like Juilliard or Eastman or something, but the regular university, it was pretty rare to find an undergrad performance degree. I ended up going to the University of Colorado in Boulder as a performance major, and I found out that I was 
only one of two freshman performance majors, me and a cello player. And every teacher we had, including the trumpet teacher, who thought I played quite well for my age, but they constantly were pushing me to get my change my degree status to music education. And I kept saying, you know, my biggest hero is Harry McNeese, who was my band director, but I don't want to do what he did. I want to maybe teach trumpet, but I don't want to be a public school teacher. It just wasn't, wasn't me. I don't know why. That's just not what I wanted to do. I wanted to perform on trumpet. I wanted to teach trumpet. At that time, you know, everybody tried to discourage me, but I, like I said, I never thought about doing anything else. So my attitude was, I'm going to do this, and no one's going to stop me. If for some reason I find out I can't make it, I'm just not good enough, there's no way it's going to happen, then I'll, I'll do something else. I'll drive a garbage truck. I don't care, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. And fortunately, I was able to keep improving, and the career came along just like I hoped. So, so trumpet performance or bust? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> like I've heard stories about um, teachers, and, then, and it's purely motivation. It's not teaching technique, and so place it in context, but they would, they would motivate their students by saying, imagine yourself flipping burgers now go practice or something, something like that, you know, and it's just a teaching uh, tactic just to get them motivated to keep, keep their mind on the, on the right track. Yeah. Sometimes people take summer jobs, you know, just working at Walmart or flipping burgers, like you say, anything just to get a little extra money for the summer. Of course, I did that too. And uh, that just strengthened my desire to be able to do what I enjoyed most. And that was music. So you finished the degree, performance degree. And what happened after that? Well, I went to graduate school in performance at Wichita State University. They gave me a graduate assistantship in trumpet. And uh, I liked going there because, in fact, the reason I was interested in applying for that school was because it, it had a good reputation for a very good music school. But it also, the assistantship meant that you played in the faculty brass quintet. And you also were uh, a member of the Wichita Symphony, which was a professional regional orchestra you know and I liked orchestra playing and I like brass quintet playing and you know I got it gave me more performing opportunities and, and more income actually from doing those things uh, than other assistantships that I knew of so that's why I wanted to go there and that's where I went and after I finished the master's I got my first full-time university teaching job at University of Illinois fall of 74 and I taught there for eight years and then in the fall of 82, I started teaching at Arizona State University, and I spent most of my career there, 37 years teaching there. And then after I retired two years ago, I taught part-time for one year at the University of Texas. They were looking for a new trumpet teacher, and they brought in four people from around the country to trade off and cover that year, and I ended up teaching 10 weeks that year. I consider those two years as a teaching assistant at Wichita State to be really like full-time teaching because my load was heavier than I've ever had full load anywhere else. I had 18 full-time trumpet students, one-hour lessons. They were all music majors. I also coached the brass choir. I taught the trumpet and French horn methods classes for the music ed students and played in the faculty quintet. The faculty members got three hours load credit for that. I got none. So if you put it all together, it's really about 48 years of full-time university wow. teaching. My goodness. And and when you're a graduate assistant, and I don't mean to get personal, but did you get paid for doing all that work or was yeah, it yeah, just a covered, tuition paid? Covered the tuition 
plus gave me a monthly salary. Oh, okay, I see. And then the Wichita Symphony paid me a monthly salary. And then the brass, our faculty brass quintet did a lot of gigging, played all over the state, made some money there. Plus, uh, you know, Wichita is not a big town, but there were some freelance things going on. So I did, you know, a decent amount of freelance playing. Money-wise and experience-wise, I got a lot more than if I would have gone to a big city like New York or L.A. I wouldn't have gotten any freelance work. Certainly not played in any professional orchestras, I'm sure, because it's all union stuff, I would imagine. So it ended up being a very good thing for me, and I think that gave me the teaching experience that helped me get over the hump to land the job at Illinois. Hey, everybody. I know you're enjoying this conversation with David Hickman. I just want to interrupt very quickly to extend a formal invitation to subscribe to my daily newsletter that I send via email. Email is the way that I interact with people who enjoy what I do and who are interested in me and who want to follow me, for lack of a better term. I don't really like that word, but email is the best way to stay in touch. And my wife actually coined a great term to describe my email newsletter. She said it's just like chewing the fat. It's James is just chewing the fat, sharing little things that happen in my life. Sometimes there's a moral lesson to it. Sometimes there's not. But that's just kind of how I, how I like to do my email newsletter. I like to keep it fun and informational, entertaining, infotaining, as they say. It's free, free subscription. And when you subscribe, you'll also get access to my mobile app that has all of the archives of the show, as well as all kinds of content related to podcasting, related to trumpet, etc., etc. So the best way to get into the newsletter is just go to my website, jamesnukemontrumpet.com, and you're going to see a form right there to sign up. You can partake of the fat that I chew on a daily basis, jamesnukemontrumpet.com. All right, let's get back to the show with David Hickman. You are singing my song in many ways, and maybe you don't realize it, because something that has been taught to me doing podcasts and something that I now teach to others who, who, who ask for my advice on such things is always focus on one small niche. And if you can master that niche, then you have a much better chance of gaining some notoriety maybe even making some money if you do it right. If you're just speaking into the wind and just trying to reach everybody, you're not going to reach anybody. I I recently rebooted this podcast, Trumpet Dynamics, for that reason, to focus on one niche. I just have a better chance of becoming known with trumpet players as a trumpet player myself than I would talking about whatever I want to talk about to anybody that I think is going to listen. You're talking about finding opportunities in this very small market like Kansas, but it's still a market. And there's still opportunities. People still like music <laughs> outside of New York City, believe it or not. That's right. And if there isn't music in that town, then make some music. You make it. Organize some groups and put together a brass quintet, put together a jazz band, put together a concert band. You always find people want to play. And if they don't have enough players, we'll teach them to play. What was a brass quintet gig like when you were doing that in Wichita State? Because I came of age in the early 90s when the Canadian brass was dominating the scene as far as brass quintet goes. But what kind of repertoire did you guys have back in those days? Uh, It was all the standard published stuff. Of course, Canadian set a new standard, and they were doing their own arrangements. Today, any full-time quintet's going to have their own repertoire, stuff that no one else plays. You know, the quintets that I played in as a student and then early in my career, we played mostly published music, and we kind of modeled ourselves after the New York Brass Quintet 
which did some touring and they played some Baroque music and some contemporary and some Civil War tunes and, you know, a little bit of everything. And that's what we did too. We tried to make a concert that was for a general audience. We played in the schools during the day and then at night we'd play a formal evening concert for anybody in town that wanted to go. And then when I went to University of Illinois, I played in the faculty quintet there. And we did the same thing. We played all over the state. And then I joined the St. Louis Brass Quintet, which toured all over the country, but mainly in the Midwest. I played with them for 11 years. The other trumpet player was Alan Dean, who a very good friend of mine and famous trumpet player. And all the guys were really top pros. And that, that was a really, really fine group. Uh, we made a few recordings and, oh, I'm not sure how many concerts a year. We toured four or five times a year, usually a couple weeks each time, eight or 10 states a year mostly around Missouri, Illinois, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, South Carolina. I remember we played played some in California even. And then I started the, the large brass ensemble. I'm sure you have heard of Summit Brass. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, a large group that, that I started in 1985. That group has toured the world and made quite a few CD recordings and put on an annual brass institute for young professional students, um, which is now called the Rafael Mendez Brass Institute, because I got to know the Mendez family. Like I said, he was, Mendez was my hero as a kid. Wow. And so I got to know the Mendez, I, well, I got to know Rafael a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I got to know his family. And after Rafael died, I worked it out with his family to, to establish the Rafael Mendez Library at Arizona State University, which we established in 1993. And it's still there, and um, I'm still in charge of that. The Mendez family sponsors scholarships to our Brass Institute every summer, so we renamed it after Rafael Mendez. You know, what goes around comes around. I, Mendez kind of got me started, and he's, here he is, an important part of my entire life. Wow. He got you started, and he's kept you going. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I first heard of him, he was just a picture on the cover of a record album playing that I thought was unbelievably out of this world. If you would have told me that I would have known him and become very close with his entire family for the next 50, 60 years, <laughs> I would have laughed and said, that's impossible. You put yourself in the right place at the right time. You had the right uh, mindset, the right mission in life, I guess, for lack of a better word. You were the right guy for the job, it sounds like. What, what kind of a guy is Raphael? Or was he, I should say? He was a very humble person. Another guy who really took a a huge interest in working with kids. Uh, you know, I mean, he played in Las Vegas at all the casinos. Uh, he was a warm-up act for Bob Hope and Red Skelton and all kinds of celebrity. So he, he played the big time. He, he sold with the New York Philharmonic and lots of major orchestras all over the, the country. This is Raphael you're talking about? Yeah. Really? What he enjoyed the most was going around and soloing with high school bands and college bands. And people would ask him why. You can make so much more money. And there were times that, that, that he literally turned down a week in Las Vegas performing three shows a day and making over $10,000 that week, which was huge money back in the 1950s Yeah, when he was real big. He would turn that down, and instead he would go out and solo with high school bands making five or $600 a night. But he enjoyed working with the kids and... Uh, now that I'm in charge of the Mendez Library, we've had the library for almost 30 years now. I have received, if I say hundreds of letters, I wouldn't be exaggerating, hundreds of letters from people that knew Raphael, most of whom were people that played in these high school bands 
back in the 1940s and 50s or 60s. They would send me a uh, an autograph program that was autographed by Raphael. It was a program they did with their high school band and said, I don't know if the Rafael Mendez Library has a copy of this program or not, but I want to donate it. And I kept this program because Rafael changed my life. He was only in our town for either one day or usually two days to do rehearsals and then concerts, but he changed my life. I was just a sophomore in high school, but when I saw how hard he worked, how he made us perfect our own playing, we could see how much better our band played in those two days from the time he walked in to the time he left. It just changed our whole standards. We also, by hearing him perform, we realized just how many thousands of hours he had to have practiced the trumpet to be a perfectionist like that, to do things that were seemingly impossible and do it with ease, night after night. I remember there was one guy, you know, Raphael's twin sons. They told me a story about a man, whenever Raphael would play in Las Vegas, Quite often, at that time, the boys were in high school, so they would travel with him in the summertime and play trios on every concert. So when they went to Las Vegas, they would play on the shows with their dad for you know a few tunes, and then they'd be backstage after the concert. And they said every time they played Las Vegas, there's always this one particular man who was really well-dressed and very distinguished-looking. He would come backstage. He didn't have trouble getting backstage because he knew everybody. He was a a building contractor. He had evidently owned a construction company that that built most of the casinos in town. Everyone knew who he was. He wanted to go backstage. They let him go back. And he would shake Raphael's hand, and Raphael would shake his hand and then realize there was a wad of money. And the man would always give Raphael a hug and, and talk to the boys. Again, remind Raphael how impressed he was. And he said, I come to see you every time you're in town because you always remind me that I should never become complacent, that to be a perfectionist like you are, I can never slack off. I have to keep working as hard as I can. And then after he left the room, Raphael would take the money in his hand, count it out. He said one time it was $10,000. That just shows how a musician like Raphael changed other people's lives who weren't even musicians. Just because of uh, perfectionism, his uh, professionalism on stage, especially when he brought his boys out to show how he had trained them to become really world-class trumpet players, even when they were in high school. You know, earlier when we were talking and just getting started with the interview, you talked a lot about how this competition, this element of competition in your early days was very helpful for you. The chair placement or the, you went to that, uh, the solo competition and that had a profound impact on you. How important was that element of uh, your development as a musician? I guess what I'm asking is, how do you think that the competition helps or hurts the development of a musician? I think it always helps as long as it's friendly competition. When I got older, I entered some competitions that were not friendly. And sometimes it wasn't just a trumpet competition, it was for all instruments. And there would be people who were trying to sabotage somebody else's performance or talking to them, trying to psych them out before they performed, you know, or sometimes saying rude things to them after they performed. So I started thinking, oh, I don't like competitions, but actually I think they serve a good purpose, particularly in the formative years, because they make you uh, really push yourself. And even when you think that you're doing the best you can, if someone beats you, and maybe they're a year or two older than you, you realize, well, if you're a trumpet player, you want to be the best trumpet player in the world. Everybody wants to be the best in the world. Who can be that? I don't know. (laughs) 
maybe there never has been someone you could really say was the best. But if I can't be first chair in my own junior high band in Kemble, Nebraska, I got a long ways to go. That's the way I looked at it. And then I would maybe be first chair. I'd go to contests and it was an all district thing. So there were maybe 10 little towns and they're having contests at this one high school. So you're competing with the trumpet players from all these other towns. Then you get in high school, you're auditioning for all-state band. I'd go to summer music camps where these camps sometimes had musicians that came from all the United States. One side of you is a guy from Florida. This side is a guy from California. And here's a guy from New York. And, you know, and I'm from Nebraska and they're from everywhere. There was always competition, but my biggest competition, I could go off to a music camp and be first chair, and there were people from all over the country, but I couldn't be first chair in my own little Kimball band <laughs> because Harry McNeese was so good at teaching cornet, and he was always featured on... I can't remember us ever having a band concert where we didn't have a cornet trio. In fact, when I was a freshman, the top six of us, we played trios, but we put two on apart, so it was a double trio, as he called it, you know, and uh, we'd play... Bugler's Holiday or whatever it was. You know, I'm the only one out of out of those six drum players. I'm the only one that went into music full-time. There was another guy who became a band director for a number of years, and then he started a music store, owned a music store, and then he retired from teaching after about 20 years and still owns that music store. But I'm the only one who specialized in trumpet and became a professional trumpet player. But all of those guys could have if that's what they wanted to do. What kind of competitions? I mean, what kind of... Uh unhealthy competitions. Did you see this kind of stuff that you described? You know, I didn't really see that till I was in college and I entered some national competitions. I won two national solo competitions that were open to all instruments. And then I won another competition when I was in grad school. Even during those competitions, I found some people that were trying to sabotage everybody else. I had some students over the years that wanted to enter competitions and I'd hear all kinds of stories about things that were going on there. And sometimes, you know, things are not fair with judges. I've been on the judging panel of a lot of solo competitions, sometimes for all instruments, usually just for trumpet. And sometimes they're not not fair. How are they not fair? There's one in particular I could talk about, international trumpet competition. It's not held in this country. It's held in a foreign country. And I was to be the, the U.S. judge. And they had judges from all over the world. There. And these were all big name people that I knew and it was fun to hang out with them for a whole week of competitions through the different rounds. And the people that entered the competitions had to memorize and perform about 10 major works, very difficult pieces. And the finals, the three finalists soloed with orchestra and had to play two concertos with the orchestra each on the same concert. Wow. Yeah. So it was a whole concert of trumpet concertos. But anyways, this competition was funded by a national government. Okay, I can see where this is going. Yeah, well, (laughs) when the finals were over, the judges were to go into this meeting room to deliberate. And I think it was pretty obvious who was the winner. The winner was not from the country that sponsored the competition. Before we even got into a discussion, the person in charge of the competition came in. He told us Before you deliberate, it's really important if we're going to be able to continue this competition that the first place winner be from that country. Otherwise, the government may say, we're not going to give all this prize money and pay for all these judges. And if our country doesn't look good. Did the person who win, was he he or she deserving at least? Like, could they have been at least in the running to win? Well, there, there were 
three finalists that were all really good, but to me, one really stood out better than the others. I think I would have voted for the person that we gave it to or had to give it to, maybe my second choice. Then this person was there while we did our deliberations and talked to make sure that that the voting went the way he wanted it to. (laughs) It's kind of like if we were going to get paid our fees... (laughs) and reimburse for our plane fares. And if we were going to hopefully let the competition continue in future years, we're going to have to go along with this. And I was the only one to kind of express my view about I didn't like this. Right. You know, I've been on panels and I knew the other panelists that judge competitions that were international in various countries, and they didn't uh, insist that the winner be from their country. Yeah. Did this host country have, by any chance, communist leanings in its politics? I'm not going to say, but okay, you're a pretty smart guy. <laughs> I mean, it, it just sounds like just a, a government wanting to fix it. Like that guy, what, what's that sh- that movie we watched, The Dictator? Mm-hmm. Of like this guy, he's like this <laughs> fictional dictator of, uh, what's the name of that country? Wadia. Wadia. And everything goes his way. And if it doesn't go his way, he goes like this and they're toast. Anyways, we ended up giving out first, second, and third prizes. The guy from that country won first. And I was a little bugged about that, but I do feel that he played really well. And I do feel, I think there was at least one of the judges who actually thought he played the best. Okay. And I don't beat myself up over it too much. I think that, you know, competitions are good when you're young and you're trying to compete with yourself, trying to motivate yourself to, I want to win that little plastic trophy. It seems like it's very, very difficult to judge music, especially at a very high level, because my wife and I, we just finished watching the Wimbledon tennis tournament, and it's clear, it's cut and dry. You know how you win. You get more points than the other person, but... It seems like with something like music, it's it would be very difficult to judge who is the better player in that particular circumstance. Music is an art. It's not you know it's not like the Olympics where you can just time who ran the fastest. You know you know if I ask you, James, who's the best trumpet player? Rafael Mendez, Doc Severinsen, Harry James, or Louis Armstrong? You're going to have a tough choice because they're all so great in their own way. They're all highly influential in different eras and different specialties. Different personalities, different style of players, and just you, you really can't compare them. There gets to be a point where you should stop doing the competitions, start going for jobs. Fortunately, you have to compete for a job too. In most cases, they're actually looking for the best player. But even then, there's politics, you know? Well, we have a couple of more minutes left, but I was uh, doing a little research on you and I was just trying to figure out, think of some questions that I wanted to ask. And I got stuck on this Blackburn five valve C trumpet. And I ended up watching the entire video, which is like 20 minutes long, yeah. read a good portion of the, the ebook that you have online. If it's okay with you, if I could just pick your brain a little bit about this really interesting instrument. I've always thought, you know, it'd be nice to have a lot of different keys trumpets, you know. And of course, you know, if you went back 70 years ago, professional trumpet players owned a B-flat trumpet, a C trumpet, and maybe, just maybe, a smaller horn, like a D trumpet or a piccolo. To look at professional trumpet players now, how many trumpets do they own? They own a flugelhorn, they own a cornet, they own a B-flat, a C, a D, an E-flat, maybe an F or G. Definitely a piccolo and A or A, B flat. All the jazz players are rolling their eyes like, why do you have to make this so difficult? Yeah, yeah. 
But um, I um, studied with Armando Gatala for one summer and Roger Voizan for one summer. And they both played four-valve CD trumpets. So it was a C trumpet that when you push the fourth valve, it cut off a little piece of the lead, lead pipe tuning slide and put it in D. So for certain passages, you could put the instrument in D, or you could play it in C, but just certain notes you could play on the D side. When I studied with them, of course, I was curious about their instruments. I asked if I could try it. They let me play them, and I, I could easily see the advantages. They kind of showed me, for this passage, do this and that. I picked up on it, you know, after a little fiddling with it, and I could see that. So I decided to have a four-valve CD trumpet made for me. So I had a really good repairman take a C trumpet that I owned and convert it to a four-valve CD. I played on that for years. And then I started thinking, you know, what I really need is a D-flat trumpet. You think, well, what the heck do you need a D-flat trumpet? Well, there's a lot of orchestra passages that the fingerings are in six flats or something. If I could put it in D-flat, it would make it so much easier. I just thought it would be a better key. So I had a, a used C trumpet that I got real cheap, and I never really played it. So I took it to a repair guy and cut it down to D-flat. Cut the valve slides, cut the tuning slide. So it only played in D-flat. And those passages became so much easier. And then I found out Bill Vacchiano played a D-flat trumpet fairly often. I think his was a D trumpet that he pulled the slides out and made it D-flat. One of his students, Tom Stevens, who played principal in L.A., he played a D-flat trumpet. Now what he did was he had a C trumpet cut down like, like what I had done. And he used it certain passages, certain pieces. A really close friend of mine is Don Green, who later became principal of L.A. Phil when Tom Stevens retired. And he, were, he and I were talking. He says, oh, yeah, I have a D-flat trumpet. I use it all the time. Now, what he did was he, he put a, a C trumpet bell on a E-flat trumpet that became a D-flat trumpet. And he said it played pretty well. He started naming off the pieces in orchestra that he would use that horn on, the same ones that I like to use. So I kept thinking, you know, we made a CD trumpet that worked quite well, just simply by taking a C trumpet, cutting it down to D-flat. I kept thinking to myself, why can't one be made that played D, D-flat, and C? So I started thinking of different ways to do that. Just taking dogs for a walk late at night, <laughs> kind of rambling through this through my head for night after night for weeks. I finally kind of in my head came up with a design I thought would work. So I drew it out to scale. I thought, I think this would work. It was a five-valve instrument. So I showed it to Cliff Blackburn at one of the ITG conferences. Cliff and I have been friends for a long, long time. In fact, the very first trumpet Cliff ever made was a, a C trumpet that I bought. Wow, what? Serial number 001. You're kidding. I bought the very first Blackburn. Do you still have it? No. I later went on to other Blackburn trumpets, but I ended up selling that to a student who now plays in the Minnesota Orchestra. I should have kept it because I think it's probably a nice collector item now. But anyways, I showed the drawing to Cliff. I had written out different orchestra solos that we all need to know for auditions and stuff. And I wrote it out for trumpet in D-flat. I also knew that the instrument could play in the key of B natural. So it could play in four keys. So I started writing out a whole bunch of excerpts that could be played on that same horn with these different keys. So I said to Cliff, I said, I, I know you don't have time to look at it right now because he was at his table selling trumpets. I said, but tonight, the hotel room, take a look at this drawing and these excerpts. 
I'll talk to you tomorrow about it. So when I went by the next day, he was grinning ear to ear and he said, there's no reason why that won't work. And then he had some ideas to make it better because I originally, you know, the one I'm playing now that he made has four piston valves and one rotor valve. The one I had designed had three piston valves and two rotor valves. He had already was making a four valve cluster for his piccolo trumpet. And he also made a four valve E flat trumpet. Right. So he said, why don't we just use that same cluster and then add one rotor valve? He was excited to build it because he, he said it was just something different. He was getting a little tired of making the same trumpet. Yes. You know, yes. all, all of his instruments were custom, but basically it's same one after another. So he took the time to build this thing. And it was maybe one month after the ITG conference, he called me up and said, I'm going to send you a trumpet. I think you'll like it. I get this thing in the mail and I start playing it. It's pretty good. But it had a few intonation problems. So I started to figure some stuff out. I said, well, you know, there's two notes that are horribly flat, and they're causing a lot of other notes to be out of tune. If we could fix those two notes, one was the second line G, which is usually a little flat. Well, it was unbearably flat. And the fourth space E, which is normally flat enough that a lot of times people play it one and two. Open, it was just quarter tone flat. I said, if you could fix those two notes, I think we got something. You know, he does nodal point theory. He knows where all the nodal points, anti-nodal points are in the length of the of the instrument. So he has it all plotted on computer. And when he looked at it, the nodal points affecting those two out of two notes were in the tuning slide. You know, the rotor valve and then a little short tuning slide comes out of that. You mean the, the fifth valve tuning or the main tuning slide? Well, you have a lead pipe that goes into a rotor, and then there's a little loop, which the rotor cuts off to make it a D-trumpet. When it's in normal rest position, the sound goes through the loop, making it a C-trumpet. He said both of the nodal points, or anti-nodes, I should say, that are messing up those two notes, both appear in that little loop. If I make the bore size smaller, I think it'll raise the pitch of those two notes. So he said, I'm going to try it. He called me the very next day and said, I got it fixed. You'll love it. I couldn't believe it. I I kept thinking, okay, well, I can't believe he really fixed this thing in one day. It showed up and it was right on. Wow. All the notes in every key. I mean, you got to use your first and third triggers. Two valve slides are cut down more for a D trumpet than they are a C trumpet. But you just extend them a little bit when you need to. Those two notes were fixed and everything was really good. I called him and I said, I can't believe it. You, You fixed it. You know, I said, so it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's done. It's ready to play. So I had it elaborately engraved and then gold plated. And I just love that horn. So he made a bunch of them. Uh, it's a custom order and it's kind of expensive. I think they're $8,000. Do they still make them now that Pickett has taken yeah. over? Yeah, Pickett makes them. Really? Cliff made, I think, maybe eight of them. Kept one for himself. He said it was his favorite trumpet. Then Pickett has made maybe five or six. Well, I'm in the market for one. Maybe uh, Peter can cut me a deal with the additional three listeners that are going to be here of his product <laughs> with this podcast. Anybody that actually sits down and plays on one and maybe has that little booklet that shows the different excerpts in these different keys, within 10 minutes, you'll probably be convinced this is a really useful horn. I'm of the feeling that it will eventually become more standard. You know, when the French horns came out, they were three valves, and then they made a double horn that had four valves. The fourth valve shifted, you know, from F yeah, to... Yeah, changed the game. And horn players thought that was the stupidest thing. What's a double horn? It got four valves, and they all rejected it. Everybody plays it now. Right. And, of course, now they make five-valve and even six-valve horns. So you can get a triple horn, F, B-flat, and high F. Then you can get... 
well, tuba players and euphonium players, they used to play three valves. How many valves does a tuba player deal with now? Four for sure, five quite often. Euphonium, same way. Four is standard. You go to the music store and want to buy a euphonium or tuba, you can't even find a three valve anymore unless it's an old student model from the 1950s. It's going to come with four valves. And it's so useful. People just get used to it. If you play on that five-valve trumpet, let's say an hour a day, and you start with a little booklet that, that I made up, you can download it online and, and try to figure out when you'd use the other valves and when you wouldn't. Within two weeks, you're going to be a pro at it, and you'll never look back. But even just if you only play it in C and use the regular three valves, it's still the, about the best C trumpet you'll ever play. Beautiful sound, fantastically in tune. You know, it's it's ambrons, which is a little bit heavier metal than than your standard weight brass. It's just a little bit heavier, but I think it gives it a really nice, robust sound without being too dead or anything. To me, it's something really worth looking at. A lot of people just, they look at the five hours and go, I don't well, even want to begin to think how to figure that out. And I think the time for people to start playing one is when they start college and start learning all the excerpts and transposition and that's they should grow up with that horn and by the time they graduate they'll just be a pro man but the problem is a lot of freshmen in college can't afford that well if they become more popular then other manufacturers will produce them and maybe it'll drive the production costs down a little bit who knows I think it's worth looking at. I think everybody should be open-minded and really look at it, maybe even try one before you really judge. My goodness. Sadly, it is time for us to part ways here on this uh, call. I'm just recapping what we discussed. Harry McNeese, Kimball, Nebraska. Probably next time I drive through Nebraska, I'm, I'm going to be on the lookout for a highway sign that says Kimball after this conversation. Really amazing stories. I really, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing a little time with all of us listening in. Wish you all the best, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thanks, James. Really appreciate it. I had fun.